Also, I know everyone already has said this and everyone agrees. I would watch, like, a trilogy of young Lando movies. Um, only if they make good on the promise of him being pansexual. Yeah, sure. Don't be cowards. Make it gayer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the podcast uh, where we connect academic ideas with popular culture, assign you homework, and hopefully make it enjoyable again for the first time since high school. I'm not going to tell you how long that's been for me, although I did have a birthday recently. Uh, joining me today, as always, to talk about um, illustrious ideas and trash popular culture is my co-host... Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, and sadly, I have yet to win any spaceship in any sort of card game. Uh, still working on that one. Do you want to talk about Solo? I feel like that's not your credential for today, but that sounded like you kind of it's, wanted to talk about Solo. It's absolutely not my credential for today, but, you know, we both saw Solo. We were both talking about it before we started recording. It's on my mind. Sweet. Uh, we are joined today by friend of the show and fellow podcaster, Joel Kenyon. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, why, if you don't mind, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, uh, as we were kind of talking about pre-show, I'm a old school podcaster. been doing this for approximately 12 years now. Um, had several different incarnations of the shows that I've been a part of. I'm a pop culture fanatic of sorts, so this kind of fits right into that wheelhouse with my life being nothing but uh, films and music <laughs> for the most part. Uh, not so much TV uh, in this day and age, and, and books have kind of taken a backseat since I no longer have a commute that I am riding on a train. It's a little hard to read and drive, although I've seen people do it. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope you yeah, haven't. Uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, I have, and I, uh, I I prefer to live, so I try and steer clear of that. But uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, well, but that's why God invented audiobooks. What are people even doing? <laughs> I question that every day when I look at the newsfeed on Facebook. Yep. Oh God. So, so you but, must have been part of the uh, like the original wave of podcasting if you've been doing it for twelve years now. I was on the ground floor. I was lucky enough to, I had three friends of mine who were all former radio hosts in their actual lives, whether it was college radio or professional, who wanted to quit talking to themselves and kind of start talking to a wall to other people. And uh, I initially had been doing a comic strip that uh, one of them was doing a fake news site, very similar to what The Onion was that came out a few years later, and they wanted my cartoon to be a part of that. Well, after that ended, we were friends at that point and uh, had hung out, and uh, they kind of had me start doing a couple segments here and there. That turned into a regular gig about 12 episodes into their run, and then we ran through... 196 episodes before it finally uh, went to a, a its an unfortunate demise. But that was the awful show. And then from there, I just immediately jumped into the next show and just it's become a passion now. So, yeah. So I, I, what's that? Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's fine. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, I know you're currently doing 40 going on 14, um, and the Creeper cast, and the, is it the, is it Joel's Happy K-Pants Hour? <laughs> um, well, the Creeper or... cast is an online horror blog that I write for. I'm one of the, uh, I'm the assistant editor. And so that used to be a podcast that I wasn't a part of. And then once the podcast um, passed away, then the blog has remained. And so we write okay. horror movie reviews and things like that. Um, the Sunshine Happy Pants Hour is my uh, musical podcast. Just me, solo. And that um, initially started out as what we called Snacks on the Awful Show, where each of the individual hosts had their own uh, solo show. So we were putting out five to six episodes weekly to kind of fill the entire week with stuff. And I was doing the same thing. And that's just kind of morphed over the years into this. And then I also do uh, the Coffin Joe cast with um, Graham, a.k.a. Killa Wilba, over in Australia. And that's kind of like this where we have a, a rotating third co-host. We're the two core. And then the third person comes in every week, whether they're a podcaster, whether they've never done a show in their lives or whether they, um, you know, have some other facet that they're musicians or whatever, and they'll come on and join us. It's very free form, but um, those are the three shows I'm doing currently. Fun. Yeah, well, very cool. thank you for taking the time out to join us for our little show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Uh, so we start our show uh, with a quick discussion of our pop culture credentials. Uh, we want our listeners to know that we know what our, we're talking about when we talk about our uh, our pop culture knowledge. Uh, and this is just the last piece of pop culture or media that you consumed unedited for guilty pleasure content or perceived uh, embarrassment. I myself have admitted to uh, enjoying more uh, reality TV and, uh, you know, trash lit than I am necessarily comfortable admitting. <laughs> um, but uh, Pete, why don't you kick us off with your pop culture credential for the week? Sure. Um, so I'm kind of sort of in between books right now. So went to the bookstore yesterday, picked up a couple that I've been meaning to read for a while. And um, so this afternoon I was reading uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, yeah. I, I'd only ever read Lathe of Heaven by her before which I read twice, once in high school and once, like, randomly two months before she passed away. Like, just just so happened to be that way. Um, it's fantastic so far, The Dispossessed. Uh, I'm highly recommending it. It's sci-fi. It's uh, radical, anarchic communism. Um, cool ideas all over the place. I'm shocked that you haven't read more Ursula K. Le Guin. I know. Like, Ursi never really appealed to me, although I'm pretty sure I'm going to fall into it fairly soon. Um, I love the way she writes. It's it's so, like, she as a writer is phenomenal, and I am kicking myself that I haven't read more of her. It's Pride Month, so read The Left Hand of Darkness. Yep, that is also on my list. Uh... Joel, what do you have for us in terms of your last piece of pop culture experience? Well, as I just put in the show notes here, I don't know if this qualifies, but um, I just finished watching the IT crowd for the first time. And oh, the the original version. Yes. The fun. Nice. Uh, which I have been it's been sitting in my queue for years. And it's, again, kind of right in my wheelhouse as far as I grew up watching um a lot of, of 
uh, PBS and a, whatever they would have on their Faulty Towers and Monty Python. And, and so that dry kind of British humor was my bread and butter outside of I Love Lucy and, uh, you know, the old black and white sitcoms. So, you know, you've got nerds, you've got pop culture, you've got computers, and it all kind of blends into this, unfortunately, very brief run of a series. But um, I have to admit, I was laughing out loud. It burned bright, and then it burned out. <laughs> Which is probably the best way to go, to be honest. I mean, six episodes a season, with the fifth season being a 45-minute finale. I've always heard that for a good pop song, number one, you should always end on a minor chord, because internally, your brain is wanting a, a major chord. So when you hear that minor chord, as far as your mind is concerned, the song hasn't ended. So you want to hear it again. Same thing with having a 45-minute record. It's short enough that it it keeps you interested. And by the end of it, you want to start it over because it wasn't an hour. So That's fascinating. I, I definitely can feel that. Like, listening to longer albums when I'm like three-fourths of the way down, I'm like, uh, I, I could end now. Like, I'll keep listening, but I could end. But like a 35, 45 minute, I'm like, no, I'm going to listen to that again. Yep. I, I don't know the exact science of it, but I found that in, in a friend of mine, when I used to run a record store, uh, one of my coworkers, actually, he was the one who introduced me to that concept. He's like, anything beyond 45 minutes can still be a great record, but it's one of those things where, you know, your favorite film or your favorite piece of lit literature Maybe one of those things that you only kind of ingest every once in a while, yeah. Because you don't want to ruin that magic that that happened when you saw it for the first time. And so, there's some 74 minute albums that I love, but I'm not going to listen to them as much as that great pop record that is over and <laughs> I'm ready to go back like Chinese food. I I'll I'll look at runtimes of movies to see if I want to like see them uh, entirely because it's like I'll watch three episodes of a TV show that takes longer than two hours. But looking at more than two hours of a movie, I'm always kind of like, uh, okay, more of a commitment. No, I, I, I have that same thing. And it's always like, Martha, you just watched eight hours of The West Wing and you couldn't, like, <laughs> bring yourself to watch a two-hour movie. And I think it's because individual episodes of a TV show are still less of a mental commitment mm -hmm. than, like, a whole two-hour movie. Um. But yeah, I'm always jealous when I hear that somebody I know gets to experience something that I love for the first time because you can only do that once. <laughs> unless it's a unless it's one of those 45-minute pop records which I forget as soon as I've listened to it, so I can just go back and start it over and it feels like the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, for myself, I am once again coming to this recording straight from work, which meant that I was listening to podcasts in the in the car. I am about halfway through an audiobook, and I was not ready for that level of commitment on this ride home, so it was back to podcasts, uh, and right now I'm getting caught up on Welcome to Night Vale, mm. which is one of my very favorites, uh, and lately they have been doing this really interesting thing where it, normally it's very episodic with like a couple of kind of serialized stories in there. They've been doing episodes in sets of three, where they'll tell like a three-part longer form story uh, over the course of three weeks, which I'm really enjoying. It's really cool to see them kind of experiment with slightly longer uh, story arcs um, in addition to the like one-off or 
uh, short-term gags uh, that they've been doing. So that's what I've been enjoying. I'm a little bummed that their live show in Chicago this past spring was not a Night Vale show. Can talk about how you only listen to the Mountain Goats? Well, the last several, like, I would say like the last four or five years, um, they've had a live Night Vale show come to Chicago uh, right around my birthday, which has been a really fun way to um, celebrate. Uh, and yeah, this year it was I only listened to the Mountain Goats. And since I don't only listen to the Mountain Goats, I wasn't all that interested in that li- in that particular live show. Whereas since I only do listen to the Mountain Goats, uh, I, I was very sad that I didn't make that live recording. Okay, uh, we are going to get into our episode proper. Today we are going to be talking about PTSD and pop cultural representations of PTSD. Uh, To get us started, before diving into our homeworks, I just wanted to read the definition or the three main types of symptoms that are associated with PTSD as laid out by the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, These are re-experiencing symptoms, as in flashbacks, bad dreams, fright, or frightening thoughts. Avoidance symptoms, as in staying away from things associated with the trauma, emotional numbness, intense guilt, or depression and hyperarousal symptoms, such as being easily started, feeling tense or on edge, difficulty sleeping, and angry outbursts. Keeping all of those in mind, uh, Joel, I would really love to start with you here. Um, You picked our topic today. Uh, Do you mind telling us a little bit about why you wanted to talk about PTSD for our episode? Well, as we were kind of uh, kicking things around prior to right after deciding to to do the show, I was trying to think of something that would have some sort of bearing uh, that I could relate to. And being a PTSD stuff sufferer myself, it felt like kind of a natural progression. Um, and it's something I've talked about on on my show before, just because um, you know, being something that that has affected me, um, I've always found that uh, mental health kind of has a a stigma to it in society that if you have mental health issues, you're somehow damaged or you're less of a person, or it's very much kind of put into a corner and kind of compartmentalized as being a negative thing. And so every chance I can get to kind of make that more of an open discussion and allow people to um, realize that the people that are dealing with that stuff are exactly the same and shouldn't be felt uh, you know, shouldn't feel shame because of it. it, it it's an opportunity that I want to take. And so that's kind of why I brought this up is because I figured this was a good platform to kind of bring that out and show that it is out there and becoming a lot more, I, I think, um, a positive thing and not the actual, <laughs> the actual <laughs> symptoms sure. and suffering, yeah. but, you know, that people can actually feel okay with it, you know? So. Mm-hmm. so you picked a film adaptation of a book, a fairly well-known YA novel. Um, when did Perks of the Being, when did Perks come out? Uh, movie was 2012, and the book was 1999. Cool. Uh, yeah, but Joel picked uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. You want to give us a real quick, like, three-sentence synopsis of that? 
uh, of the the book and the film, it deals with. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think we specifically watched the movie for the episode. Correct. Um, right. But I've I've seen or read them both, and they're pretty close. And it's been a while since I um, I read the book because when I was first dealing with my issues when everything kind of came to light, a good friend of mine and, and a, uh, through podcasting sent me a copy of the book and I didn't know why until I read it um, that she had done that, but it made a lot more sense after it. Um, but it, it tells the story of um, a young man named Charlie who's been suffering from uh, clinical depression and, and PTSD due to um, <coughs> Uh, abuse that he's endured and it's kind of his life coming into a uh, high school situation uh, making friends and kind of coming to terms with something he's kind of pushed away into the background um, kind of becoming okay with it so I actually I I love that someone sent you this book as a as a tool to presumably to help what you were going through um, was it, was it a helpful read for you? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I had been checked into a hospital on two separate occasions and this was the first, the first instance where I checked myself in. She had sent me the book, um, just a couple weeks beforehand. And so while I was in there getting treatment and kind of getting my head right, I was able to, um, I didn't have any other obligations, but to <laughs> exist so it gave me the opportunity to read the book. And, and as I'm sure all of us would agree, uh, music, film, and, and literature is a great way to kind of work through things, mm -hmm. uh, good, bad, or indifferent. And so to see somebody else dealing with the same kind of things and um, coming out the other side, you know, having that moment where they feel infinite, to quote the book, um, and, the, and the film, sorry, I keep <laughs> mentioning them both, um, was definitely, it was, it was very helpful because I've always found a lot of my strength in pop culture. And so it was a perfect way to kind of encapsulate that. Um, and I'd been looking forward to see the move, seeing the movie and I'd actually hadn't for some reason. And this gave me a good reason to, to watch it. Well, I, I would say as, as is kind of well known on this podcast at this point, I tend to not consume a lot of, um, like YA focus things either books or film or whatever this was to me felt like a very very honest portrayal of like that high school sort of experience um for kids like charlie is obviously um going through his own um issues but like looking at his friends like sam and patrick and everyone else who are all going through like various traumas of of both normal and less normal um like ways of just like being a teenager um it all felt very real and i felt very like a, a lot of notes rang very true throughout it which was really nice <laughs> also i like ezra miller looked almost like shockingly similar to what i look like in high school um long hair <laughs> same, same sartorial sense it was a little unnerving <laughs> no comment <laughs> um I really enjoy. So I'd read I'd read the book before, and I'd watched about half the movie before. Um, the book is written as an 
and Pete, please feel free to correct my pronunciation of this. Epis epistolary? Uh, it's written in journal entries, I believe. Um, epistolary. Yeah. Cool. Um, but I thought that the visualizations were really lovely. Um, I thought one of the things that comes through that came through for me a little bit better in the film version was how much affection that these kids all have for each other. Mm -hmm. uh, which I think when you're reading the book, uh, Charlie's writing is not always. Um, it can get not clinical, but like can get very, uh, like this happened and this happened. Distant, distant, I guess, mm -hmm. can feel a little bit distant, um, which I think is on purpose because he's, you know, writing to to work out, um, to work through what he's dealing with. But the the movie I thought felt warmer to me. Um, plus, I, I just I, those kids are all doing such a good job, and I just want good things for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like top top notch cast across the board. Um, I as I was I was watching it, and also I had not read the book, um, so I was wikiing the um, like the book's summary to see if it were was like dramatically different or anything. And, like, halfway through, I was thinking that I, I almost wish we were reading it to get a little bit more of, like, the disassociation that might have been happening that the movie was conveying, but I bet the book would convey more. Um, but then near the end, there was a very, very, like, visually striking scene moment that I thought did a, like, really fantastic job of sort of hitting that. Um, so I... I it, it for for something that based on the summary of it seemed like it might be difficult to convey visually it did a good job of conveying it visually well and, yeah. and like you were saying that the book is more of a almost like a, a a journal entry that he's writing you know he's writing to another person that doesn't exist himself basically and so yeah you get that very distant because i think we've all at some point had a diary or a journal or a blog that we've written and it can be a bit kind of clinical. And I thought the translation from that to this, the, you know, more storytelling format worked very well. And actually they, they go hand in hand quite nicely as far as, you know, if you, if you did one or the other or both, they would complement each other. Mm -hmm. Well, and the movie is directed by Stephen Chobsky who wrote the book. So it was adapted by pretty much the, person best suited for the job <laughs> he also did the screenplay so he like he had a good clear vision and and was able to run with it the whole way through um but yeah just in terms of i think it is interesting to think of the fact that it's written as though uh um charlie yes i wanted to say ben i don't know where ben came from um but it, it's written like charlie is writing it to us which kind of inherently brings up the question of an unreliable narrator like how reliable can charlie be in relating his own kind of dissociative experiences mm -hmm. and i i liked the visual representation of that particularly towards the end when he starts flashing back to um when he starts flashing back to his memories of helen his aunt uh, and we kind of get to see what we get that vision of what's going on in his head, um, where in the book, 
the when you get to the ending of the book, the whole thing is like, oh, how much of what you wrote was true as opposed to honest? Mm. I think is the differentiation there because it's all honest. It's what he's feeling, but it also is kind of filtered through that lens of it. the tr- The truth of his life comes out as he becomes able to address the truth of it. Did that make sense, or was that just, like, a lot of words that I said? (laughs) No, that made perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, I I like the distinction of, like, honest versus true. um, Because they're both relevant. Yeah, because when we're talking about characters who are dealing or figuring out how to deal with trauma, you know, sometimes I think that takes the form of, like, this is how I have to think about this thing that happened, or this is how I have to sort through these memories in order to learn how to deal with it. And I think that that is one of the aspects of PTSD that we get a really clear picture of in Perks. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Cool. Definitely. Sometimes I say smart things. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would like Pete to go next. Cool. Because I want to chase this thread of the way that people choose to deal with, or the ways that people sort through their trauma. And I want to fight with Pete about what (laughs) we're about to talk about. Um, Great. So uh, before I begin, Martha, I saw your tweet about this and enjoyed it immensely. So... Uh, let's get started. Um, cool I ass- motive, still <laughs> murder. Um, I assigned the 2015 um, adaptation of Macbeth, starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, and directed by Just- Justin Kurtzel. Um, plot summary of Macbeth is a Scottish dude murders his way to be king, and then gets murdered himself. Uh, other things happen. It's Macbeth. Um... I chose this because this adaptation specifically leans heavily into the idea that um, Macbeth is, like, a traumatized person. Um, There are multiple gruesome war scenes, especially at the beginning, the initial fight scene, um, that are filmed in very atmospheric ways. And um, there's a a few characters who don't have any speaking lines but are introduced to sort of, like, ground the characters a little more. Um, Macbeth has some young, um, like, squire uh, who gets killed in that initial fight, and then he sort of, like, sees him as a ghost throughout the rest of the movie. Uh, The movie begins with uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth burying, like, a young child of theirs, um, or I guess burning, whatever, um, died. Um, So there's sort of, like, this... These characters that aren't in Shakespeare's play appear visually to sort of underscore the trauma that the characters are experiencing um, and going through. And I think the movie does a great job at just capturing how terrible life in 11th century Scotland would be, um, which is sort of just like constant. Everything is terrible, so everyone is always mildly traumatized a little bit. Um, And then you throw on top of that murder and war and um, all the rest. So yeah, my tweet, which was, as I said, um, basically posting the gif from Brooklyn Nine-Nine that says, cool motive, still murder, uh, was generated from an essay that I wrote 
or an or not wrote read um, <laughs> take, an interview that I read <laughs> uh, where Michael Fassbender talks very explicitly about how like he was reading this play and go and talking about how like oh Macbeth is a character that is motivated by PTSD and like he is driven to these horrible acts by his trauma and I'm kind of like hmm I. I mean, clearly that is what this adaptation is saying. Right. I don't know that I get that from the source material. I think it is an interesting interpretation. Um, but I don't know that it's fair or... Foul? I don't know that... Well, or foul and fair? I don't know that it says good things to lay his um, regicide at the feet of the trauma he experienced from being a veteran. I actually am going to have to fall on that same side of the fence. I think that some of the things that manifested and, and were problematic for him came from the horrors of what he endured, but the motives were still there that they, they were separate from each other. They, they didn't, one didn't lead to the other. It was just, he, his motives were, clear like you said is it's still murder um it's just the the psychological aspects were kind of became more intense and stronger because of the fact that he was continually following down that path that uh i don't think were connected uh and i'm not going to disagree i i don't think that his regicide was necessarily caused by like his his experiences in the war or his PTSD. I think that it's sort of his it this adaptation sort of portrays his entire arc as one of gradual mental breakdown caused in large part by various traumas including the regicide that he did and, you know, various murders, various wars, all the rest. So I think it's more of like not so much that it caused his him to kill his king, but that that among many other things, is is just breaking him as a person. It kind of makes you wonder, like you were talking about, the, the horrors of, of that time period is that uh, mental health and, and that whole medical um, aspect of the medical uh, profession were not really in existence. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes you wonder... It, it it begs a lot of questions as far as how people dealt with those sorts of things in that time period because they didn't have the tools that we have now to get through that. And it, it made me raise a whole lot more questions about history in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I found the scene where they are um, holding the funeral for their son much more affecting. That was the scene that I kept going back to in my head whenever... Um, like whenever they showed how Macbeth and his wife were like just slowly breaking down, mm-hmm. that was the that was the scene that I kept thinking of rather than his um, rather than the battlefield stuff. Um, and I don't know if that's just because that's a form of grief that I connect to more, like in the realm of my life, the kinds of trauma that I could experience. I'm much less likely to be on a battlefield. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and and, and I, I think that, like, Lady Macbeth is definitely, like, seeing as at, at her final 
soliloquy, she is talking to the ghost of her dead child. I think that, like, that was a trauma that definitely informed her. Also because she didn't have, like, the battlefield trauma as well. I felt very conflicted about this portrayal of Lady Macbeth because on the one hand, I thought that Marion Cotillard's performance was beautiful. Mm-hmm. I thought that the way that she kind of, after after the murder of the king, the way that she kind of fades away almost, like she has her her peak of like, screw your school screw your courage to the sticking place and will not fail. Like she has that kind of peak and then spends the rest of the movie just like fading away into nothing. Um, But also I really love it when the lady Macbeth gets to be like an unchained balls to the wall, crazy person. (laughs) So I was, I was conflicted on that because it wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, interpretation of her character that I normally gravitate towards, but I did find it to be a very beautiful and heartbreaking uh, portrayal of what that character is going through. Her out damn spot is like, it is heartbreaking and phenomenal and fantastic acting, but it isn't like you say, balls to the wall crazy, which is another way you could do it totally reasonably. No, it's almost like in disbelief. Mm-hmm. Like, she's almost like, I can't, like, I don't understand what's happening anymore. Um, and I, I did I did really appreciate that I thought that the, the movie gave just as much weight to her trauma in, like, to her, her grief and trauma as it did to uh, Macbeth's. Mm-hmm. Um, and, when and, I... and it did it all without changing any of the, the you know, original play. Like, obviously you cut lines here and there, whatever. Uh, but, like, it's all, like, we're using the source material and just, like, drawing out different angles of it. Well, because I'm not sure that Macbeth, in its original format, was meant to be a play about grief. Oh, no, definitely not. Well, and that's one of the wonderful things about Shakespeare is that it lends itself to multiple interpretations. And we've seen that time and time again, whether it's set in the the true period that it was written for or whether it's a modern adaptation, um, the words can be utilized in different ways to mean different things and have just as much weight as it would have, you know, based on what the original intent was when writing it. Yeah. But yeah, Pete, you had mentioned um, before we started recording that you kind of wanted to explore how our homework uh, looks at, like, quote-unquote, and I'm using quotes because none of these should be used, none of what I'm about to say should be taken literally or as an indication that I'm putting more import on any on any one thing. I think that all, you know, all forms of trauma are horrible and I'm not giving one kind like more weight than the other. That's my disclaimer. Um, But you had mentioned wanting to explore the idea of like quote unquote larger traumas versus smaller ones, which I think is related to what I was talking about, about how I found um, their grief in bearing a child to be more relatable because it's something that I could, you know, knock on wood. I never have to, but something that I could experience in my life, whereas um, being a battlefield veteran is something that many people 
like that is a like a big thing like war and battle is a big thing and then the death of a child is a personal and an intimate thing mm-hmm. and i appreciated that there was room in this movie for both of those things and and again even like showing showing those both like the like those are also both event-based traumas but in this particular, you know, 11th century Scotland, there's also just the constant trauma of living in the Scottish Highlands in wool with fire and nothing else to keep warm and, like, not a lot of food. Clearly, they're not living rich lives of luxury. Even when he does become king, it's not like, you know, it's decadence. Um, right. So a- everything is is everything is difficult all the time which sort of sets a baseline level for existence different than what we, you know, would be experiencing. Well, and with trauma, I mean, uh, it's one of those things where it also, your personal life experience comes into play. And, you know, if, if you've lived a life where you've had nothing but famine and, and uh, like I said, kind of living with, you know, wool garments and fire and that's your whole existence. Your idea of what's traumatic may be different than somebody today who, you know, has lived in a bubble and had no connection with anybody, but through the internet or something, right. You know, it it can manifest itself in different ways. And so it's one of those things where you have to take it on a case by case basis. Cause initially when I heard the term PTSD, I always associated it with people coming back from, combat Mm -hmm. and come to find out once you're diagnosed that there are a whole lot of other things that can lend itself to that, you know, um, label. Like you said, there, there may be varying degrees of it in terms of, uh, war versus, you know, uh, physical abuse or something, but that makes it no less powerful to that person that's experiencing it. Right. And, and we know that, that children who experience a couple, um, like traumatic events in early childhood, even just one or two, like tend to perform worse in school than children who haven't had those experiences. So you're totally right that if your entire life is like, it is baseline worse than our current lives, like you might have a different sense of what is or isn't trauma. But if you're also like, if you're experiencing large shocks of like say famine or, or privation, whatever it might be from birth or from a very young age, your entire culture is likely suffering from from a low-level version of this in a way. Um, kind of what you were talking about earlier, Joel, about, like, reassessing what the past was like, um, realizing that, like, these were people who were going through traumatic events with no proper or, like, modern sense of, of mental health or, or mental health well-being. It, it definitely threw a different light on things that I hadn't thought about before seeing that film. <laughs> <laughs> Because it was a very realistic adaptation, I felt, of of that time period that I hadn't really seen before. Because mm-hmm. um, Hollywood tends to make things very Hollywood. And sometimes reality is not exciting enough for your general audience. And I felt like here, that didn't matter. It was the source material that they were focused on, um, not trying to make it marketable to the mass. Right. Everything was gray and cold and covered in mud. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Your comment about the source material reminds me that the very next year, the same trio of people, um, the director and then Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, made that Assassin's Creed movie. And 
That was not. Are a, you kidding? I know that was not a good movie, but I was excited for it because I'm like, oh, the dude who did Macbeth is is having them in his movie. It'll be great. Um, turns out that the script matters. um i think that i am going to transition us into talking about our last homework uh so i assigned the first two episodes of the netflix series jessica jones starring Kristen ritter mike coulter rachel taylor and david tennant and a bunch of other people Uh, This is part of their Marvel deal. So Jessica Jones is a former superhero who is now a private investigator. And the first couple episodes show her taking on the case of looking for a teenager named Hope, who she realizes is the newest victim of a man who uh, we come to understand through the rest of the series, um, physically and sexually and mentally abused her for a very long time and has left her with a great deal of trauma to deal with and process. Uh, He is a mind controller. He can get into people's heads and simply make them do what he wants. He is the uh, epitome of white male privilege. Sorry, guys. Um, And, uh, yeah, in these first two episodes, we get to see uh, kind of how Jessica deals with her life there's a lot of alcohol involved, a lot of bad decisions, and also what she does when she realizes that um, Kilgrave is the name of the, of the man played by David Tennant. Uh, she thought he was dead. He is not. And how she kind of mobilizes into action to find him and prevent him from hurting other people. Um, had you guys watched uh, Jessica before? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually haven't I, finished season two. Um but I think season one is like the best of the Marvel um, Netflix stuffs. I. You like Daredevil. I do, but I also don't disagree with you. Um, I think that Jessica Jones takes on a lot more. I think the issues that it takes on are pretty brave of a, I don't know. Can we call Netflix a major studio? No, Are you they... can now, I'd say, with yeah. what they're doing. Yeah, um, but I, I think it, it grapples with a lot of stuff that nobody had before, um, including not just PTSD, because as we've already talked about, like that um, that has been uh, and is something that pop culture deals with, but specifically this kind of sexual and emotional abuse of women by this particular kind of man. Um, I want to say that all of the episodes were directed by women. I know that's no. true of season no, that's, two. That's true for season two. Yeah, I'm looking at the list and I'm like, that's not true. Um, but it is for season two. Um, there, there are a lot of women that were involved in the creation of the show. Um, and yeah, I think that Jessica is a pretty singular character in that she's a main character who has no desire or inclination to be liked, which for a... Um, major piece of pop culture is kind of unusual in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it, she, it, it's yeah, rare she... to have a female protagonist who is aggressively unlikable and unconcerned with like other people's opinions of her. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say she's unlikable. I would say she doesn't care about being liked. There we because go. I certainly like her a great deal. Right. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but but if we met her like, in real life, we would not like her probably. Oh yeah, for sure. Like yeah. she's prickly and she's mean and she's self-centered but i think that you can argue later that she's self-centered as a method of self-preservation um but also she makes really bad life decisions um in this in these first episodes we see her get drunk and go home with a really attractive stranger um <laughs> who happens to who be is also Cage. a superhero right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who is also a superhero yeah um, but also we get to see her be, like, very selfless and protective. And I think I, I enjoyed I, enjoy, I enjoy this for a lot of reasons. But in terms of how she is managing her trauma, I feel like one of her coping mechanisms is this kind of defensive, protective mode that she goes into when she realizes that Hope is being manipulated by Kilgrave. Mm-hmm. And then becomes, like, very... Uh, preoccupied with finding her not just so she can find Kilgrave, but also to protect Hope and his future victims. Well, so it's like... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, to cap all that, it's like there's a disregard for her own personal well-being and an over-regard for the well-being of others. Well, and initially before, you know, when and especially in those first two episodes, she's dealing with a ton of stuff uh, you know the things that that as normal people would deal with um and how we would manage but then on top of that the fact that she's got superhuman strength and abilities that other people don't which just adds another layer of weight on her shoulders that she has to kind of manage and trying to find how she fits into this world now that she's no longer in his control and doesn't want to be that super person mm-hmm and I think that's one of the things that's great about all, all the Netflix series, in all honesty, even Iron Fist to some degree, is, um, you know, it's it's the street-level heroes that aren't trying to make a name for themselves and aren't trying to do anything other than to take care of the people that are in their immediate radius. And I think she kind of really encapsulates that in a, in a good way and a very real way that people can relate to. Because um, Luke Cage focused more on racial issues and daredevil kind of was kind of the foundation and iron fist was, if you want to talk about white privilege, um, (laughs) this one, even though it's a female protagonist, you could still relate to him, whether you're a guy, girl or, or otherwise. And, um, the way they handled her trauma in general was very, very well done. Um, they pulled some punches as far as what the comics did, um, but I think, you know, you, you almost have to, to make it consumable for mass audiences. You can always get away with more on a printed page. Yes. Yeah. It's like the more, the more you show, the less you can get away with, which is why you can get away with a lot when you're just writing, not just, but when you're writing a book versus writing a comic and then writing a comic versus writing a TV show. No, but I, I agree. I, I really liked that we get to see her conflicts of how being a trauma survivor is affecting, like, I, is it, do we get her flashbacks to when she actually was a superhero in one of these episodes or does that come later? Nope. They had it in the first season. Yeah. Well, not in the first season. Well, I mean, like what, what do you mean when she was actually a superhero? Cause like she was always super strong. Right, but we get a scene with Trish where she's holding up like a costume for her, 
Um, that was all the first season. Yeah. So yeah. in like talking about possible code names, like there there is a a a, um, a pa- that like in Jessica's past is like her actually being a superhero rather than just a person with superhero abilities. And I like that now we are seeing not the fallout from that, but the fact that that was something she did. It's something she can't do anymore because she can't, she doesn't feel like she can be that kind of selfless savior. Although then we get to see that those instincts are still in her. Yeah. Um, even if she's not like gonna put on a costume and go fight with uh, Iron Man. Um, one one thing that I liked about this, it and why I think it's structurally this season is so good, is that Kilgrave doesn't show up in person until fairly late on, um, relatively speaking. Um, and so for these two episodes, he's more just like a terrifying boogeyman who's only appearing in her flashbacks and not in in the modern timeline um the scene where he licks her face yeah. while she's sleeping yep makes so me climb out of my skin and die <laughs> um but yeah no the way that they get across that like as far as she knows at the beginning of the show he's dead but that doesn't mean that she can put her trauma away like it's still very much something that lives with her Yes. And affects her, and how the show visualizes that, I thought was very good. For her, she's still there, even though for the rest of the world, he isn't. Yes. I also, going back to something that you mentioned earlier, Joel, I like, I like that, um, I like the way that that kind of shows that, yes, this is something, like, this is how it can go for you, and if you are feeling this way about something, like, it's okay, like, it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be expected to get over something, like, just because maybe the figure of your trauma, um, you know, isn't in your life anymore for whatever reason. So, like, it may not feel that your fears or reactions are still rational, but that doesn't make them not real. And visualizing the way that he continues to, like, stay in her brain, like, in that, in that very physical way, even though we know as an audience that he's not there, um... I enjoyed as a way to sort of tell the audience, like, this is a, a very real thing that people experience. Well, and it also ties in, I, I, interestingly enough, to the whole concept of, um, you know, the 45-minute album or the ending on a minor key. It's kind of in reverse here, but you're getting introduced to the character through, like you said, Boogeyman is a great way to look at it because you're instilling that fear in the the, the viewer before you ever see him face to face and see what truly kind of a monster he is. But the setup is just done very ingeniously. And um, it, it again ties in with what you're saying about how to that person that's dealing with it, it's still very real, whether that figure that caused it is alive, dead or, uh, you know, living next door, it doesn't matter. It's still something that you're coping with on a daily basis. Mm hmm. You know, it, it makes me feel of the, it makes me um, think about the way that we like soothe kids after they have a nightmare. Like, it's okay, it's okay, it's not real. It cannot be real and not be okay at the same time. Like, those are, those are ideas that are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so, does anybody have uh, any, I guess, bigger picture thoughts? We've kind of 
I, I just want to say so, I just want to say real quick that I appreciate that we picked um, homework to talk about that shows people that just shows that people deal with trauma in different ways, whether that is through or not deal with, but like process it differently. Um, you know how successful they are at that is kind of a different matter. But I appreciate I, I feel sometimes like PTSD gets treated as like a this is the one thing that it is. Um, and I think it's important mm. to understand that it manifests differently for the people who experience it. And well, that like, it just, it, I just wanted to say that like, it, it doesn't make it less real or less valid if like one person's PTSD doesn't look like somebody else's. And we didn't, we didn't talk about this, but Perks of Being a Wallflower, I think was a great choice. Um, partly because like, Macbeth is a bad example for what I'm about to say, but, like, Perks is showing someone who's able to, like, be a very successful person, or, like, very successful people, while still have, like, while still um, suffering from, from PTSD from a traumatic event. Obviously, Macbeth less so. Uh, Jessica Jones, a little bit of a coin toss. Like, she's successful, but makes bad choices. Um, but if we're if we're going to talk about Macbeth in the context of having PTSD, I think it's also important to note that Macbeth has no support structure. Mm. Like Charlie has friends who love him and has people that he can rely on and who will support him. And Jessica does too. I think her problem is that she doesn't believe in that or trust it. Right. Macbeth has no one. Well, and the other thing that I I appreciated about what each of you chose um in correlation with what I chose is that we've got three very, very different examples of the same thing. Um, with perks, you've got youth coming to terms with this Macbeth. You've got somebody who, like you said, doesn't have that support structure, a totally different time period, but as an adult dealing with it. And then you've got Jessica Jones, who's a superhero and yet they're all dealing with the same, essentially the same thing but different levels and different time periods and different age groups. And it, it was a really a very good cross-section of those three aspects, um, all of the same thing. And, and different causes, too. For sure. Yeah, again, it's, it's important to, I think it's important for people to understand, and one of the things that pop culture can help with is showing that, you know, people can experience trauma from a variety of different things. And something that I might not think of as being um, traumatic. First of all, if I haven't experienced it, I don't have any place to label it that way or not. Um, but the like that people's personal experiences, people experience and process things so differently. Um, you know, I, I like that pop culture can give us uh, a way to understand and recognize that, and you know, just get a chance to see. Uh, what it can be like for somebody else. Well, and and coming from someone who deals with it on a daily basis, it was a very accurate representation of that, which is what I was the most curious about in suggesting the topic was to see how that played out in your examples that you would have chosen, because I didn't know at the time, and the one that I already was familiar with. And, you know, the memory gaps, the flashbacks, the blackouts, the um, the coping mechanisms, those are all very real things that um, people that are dealing with those things 
have to figure out sometimes on their own and sometimes through uh, mental health professionals and sometimes through medication. I'm lucky enough that I don't, um, I've learned ways to deal with things without having to deal with medication. Um, but some people it's, it's much more extreme and, and sometimes that's the only option. That's the only thing that I really didn't see here other than self-medication, um, was that aspect of it. Which I think we can all say, don't self-medicate. <laughs> don't self-medicate but also if you need medication to help you deal with things that's totally valid yes yep. i really get i really have no patience for people who are like do yoga don't take antidepressants it's like well i can do yoga and also need anti-anxiety medication to help me like live my life so yeah um <laughs> the more yes. that i talk about this with people and get the varying degrees i find that not everybody, just like in these characterizations, not everybody handles it the same way or not everybody's dealing with the same things. And there are some people that I know that that's the only option they have because it's so extreme. And I, again, it's that stigma of going to the, the pharmacy counter and asking for your Xanax or your, um, you know, Klonopin or whatever, that people look at you sideways like, what's wrong with that person? And, and I just, I wish that that was different, but I, I'm glad that it's out there for those people that need it. Yes, and I am I'm 100% with you, Joel. I am absolutely thrilled to help share stories that normalize mental health care. Um and the fact that probably everybody should be in some kind of therapy, not because we all have things that we're dealing with, but because having somebody else help you with your day-to-day -day life can sometimes be a necessary part of uh, mental health care and self-care. Um, I, I work with teenagers, so I try to be very open. I work hard to be open and honest without crossing like a professional boundary. Cause it's like, I'm still a, an authority figure, but like I see a therapist every other week and it's not something I'm embarrassed about. And I think that our country could stand to be a little bit more forgiving and understanding of people who grapple with their, uh, mental health however they need to. Mm -hmm. I could not agree more. That feels like a good place to end. Um, unless anybody has any final thoughts or anything they want to get in under the wire? I, I've got a bit of a thought, but I like that ending too much to be like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the, cool. the, the, the ending is better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Joel, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Uh, where can people find you on the internet and where can uh, people go to find your various other projects? Uh, well, for 40 Going on 14, the Coffin Joe cast and the Sunshine Happy Pants Hour, um, iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, uh, Google Podcasts, podcastcollective.com. And uh, the CreeperCast, if you're into horror films, uh, that's at CreeperCast.com. I still can't get over the Sunshine Happy Capants Hour <laughs> as a name. That's such a great name. Well, it's got a long and sordid history, but uh, the, K, the K in front of the pants comes from, I don't know if you guys ever saw the Chris Elliott show, uh, Get a Life, that was on for a season. It was a Fox show. He is a, he's kind of a... Um, an idiot savant and he is at a spelling bee and they ask him to spell the word pants and he's sitting there for a minute or two 
and he's kind of looking confused and he starts with the letter K and they cut to the next scene. And (laughs) I've always felt like that's kind of a good summation of my life. And so that's where that comes from. Uh, You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you download podcasts. You can find our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. Uh, If you have a question, comment, review, idea for a show, want to be a guest on the show, send us an email at show at homeworkpodcast.com. You can find me personally on the internet on Twitter or Instagram at MagicalMartha. Lately, I have been uh, posting a lot of photos of my guinea pigs who just had their annual (laughs) vet checkup. They are fat and healthy and beautiful, and I have the vet approval to uh, prove that. (laughs) Pete, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. And let's be real, these days, there's a lot of overlap between those two. Uh, On our next episode, uh, Pete and I both got kind of a bug in our bonnet over Macbeth. So we are revisiting Shakespeare. Uh, But this time we're taking a look at Shakespeare reimagined. So stories that are not stories that use the bard's uh, ideas and stories rather than his words. Uh, Pete, what have you got for us? I'm assigning the 1985 Kurosawa movie. I'm going to go with Ran, but I'm going to bet it's actually Ron. Um, Ron. Ron. It is Ron. Yes. As as a good Midwestern Chicago boy, Ran. Uh, um, which is his version of King Lear. And we will be joined again uh, once more by wonderful friend of the show, Marin Hagman, who is assigning the near and dear and beloved to my heart 1999 masterpiece, 10 Things I Hate About You, which, as we all know, is Taming of the Shrew. Oh, and what a wonderful version. I have to agree with you on that. It's infinitely better than the original. (laughs) There are a lot of movies from the 90s that do not age well. I I really feel that 10 Things I Hate About You is pretty timeless. Uh, Martha was originally going to assign the the Mallory Blackman book Chasing the Stars, which is apparently a space opera version of Othello. However, it appears that Mallory Blackman is basically only famous in the UK, and it's incredibly hard to get uh, Chasing the Stars here in the US. So if you do have access to Chasing the Stars, Go ahead and check it out as an extra credit assignment. However, Martha's actual homework assignment is going to be As I Descended by Robin Talley, a, uh, I guess, a high school YA version of Macbeth. So we get two weeks of Macbeth for you guys. Uh, But that's all we got for you today. Thanks for joining us. And as always, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed.